Welcome and thanks for listening. I'm Stacey Randall Shaheen. And I'm Diane Amelia Reed. Together, we will examine essential questions so you can cultivate a deeper connection to your true identity and help others do the same. This is personal power for the common good. Change your life, change the world. We are absolutely thrilled to have two esteemed guests, Nancy Schwoyer and Rosemary Houghton, who are going to be talking with us, giving their wisdom, their well-earned wisdom, about the long view from being in your 80s and your 90s. Yeah, this is our the eighth stage, the final stage of Eric Erickson's psychosocial development, which is the challenge is integrity versus despair. And as we know, it's whichever one you come up with serves you well or doesn't serve you well in the next stage. But yeah, Nancy and Rosemary are two of Diane and Millie and I's favorite people on the planet. and Possibly the whole stratosphere. Right. Uh, Mentors to us, friends to us, colleagues of ours. I just can't say enough about them. So thrilled that they're our first and only guest speakers on the first series of Personal Power for the Common Good. Lucky us. Lucky world. That's good for us to be here. Thank you for asking us. Yes. So we're going to ask you just a series of questions about personal power to start with and hear your thoughts from your current age and from your past and everything in between. So we're going to start by asking some questions about personal power, which is one of the themes of this podcast, particularly as women, one in her 80s and one in her 90s. So the first question, and if you would just say your name and your age when you speak for the first time, when do you feel most powerful? This is Rosemary. I'll be 95 next April. Um, so I'm at the top end of this reflection. And uh, the, the answer is partly that at my age, personal power is not what it's about. If I have any power as an individual, it's because I'm influencing other people, learning with other people, and making my um, wisdom, if you like, uh, known uh, to people of, uh, who are younger and with, with a different kind of life. So that's, that's not a quite an answer to the question. I don't experience it as personal power, mm-hmm. but rather being part of our with wherever we encounter it. That's excellent. We, we've talked about the concept of power with. Versus power over. Yes, mm-hmm. in past episodes. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Rosemary. How about you, Nancy? Well, I agree with what Rosemary is saying. I'm, I'm 84, just turned 84 in September, so there's 10 years uh, between us. I really believe that I experience myself most alive when I am in relationship with other people. Mm-hmm. I don't, it's engaging with other people that I know I come more alive than if I try to interact, well, not interact, but be with myself. So that's what I would add. Well, both of us have certainly felt that power of engagement that you both have in bringing us Absolutely. alive as well. So, flipping that question, when does it occur that you feel least powerful? Well, I feel least powerful when I just don't know how to do something. At this point in my life, I find that I get challenged all the time by trying to use technology and other things that I just am not at ease with. And I get so frustrated. I feel I just, I can't do something. And that really, finds I just, my energy just goes very low and I get very stressed. And yet it's, a, it's, it's just a reality that one, at, even at my age, needs to learn how to do basics and even more than that. So that's when I, I, I feel really less, less powerful. And also, there's something Rosemary and I have talked about. It's a sense of 
of the political realities of our world, mm -hmm. not just the political, but all the realities. As we listen to the news or as we read, uh, we both find we get incredibly discouraged and wonder, what can we do? What is there at our age that we can do to make a difference? And I think we sometimes turn the television off. It just becomes overwhelming. We can't see how to insert ourselves. Yeah, and you might say that's because of your age, but I think a lot of people of all ages experience exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. And many yes. people are turning off the TV or other news mm -hmm. because it's like an emotional contagion. Mm -hmm. It's very negative mm -hmm. and can yeah. bring you to despair, for sure. Yeah, the, the days of our marching, those days I feel are gone. And as Rosemary said to me last night, well, maybe they're not. Mm -hmm. Maybe there is something. Maybe there is. Maybe, maybe we can experience ourselves in a march sometime. But most often, most often, we, 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 I don't. We're going to have a very powerful march coming up soon, I would think, because of the Supreme Court's almost reversal of Roe versus Wade to my great despair. So I will buy you both power wheelchairs and happily come with you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> How about you, Rosemary? Well, it's very similar to what Nancy's saying. Sometimes the feeling is, what's the use? Especially with the climate crisis, which is getting worse by the day. And we only need to remember the, the, the horrible tornado which was on the news yesterday and today. And, and so many, at least governments, don't seem to be paying any attention. And they're still only sort of in hock to the fossil fuel companies. You know. At this stage, you wouldn't think anybody could be, but that's how it is. And, but I don't stay there. Uh, because as soon as I feel that, I make myself remember the millions and hundreds of millions of people who are acting mm -hmm. and whom I can, if not be part of in a physical direct sense, or even give them a few dollars or, mm -hmm. and say a few prayers. And, but it's, so I'm not, despair is not something, I, as soon as I begin to feel that getting ready, I push it back because it's not real. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the reasons for despair are many, but they're not enough to push the weight you know, in too far in the wrong direction. At least I don't think so. Yeah, that's, that's great insight. And you both have created so many embers in other people mm -hmm. throughout your decades long, not just um, times on the planet, but in your careers and your personal relationships and Diana Millie and I are, you know, we're existence of that. Absolutely. We're, yeah, evidence. I just want to acknowledge the power of choice because mm -hmm. you have the choice to turn off the TV. You have the choice to go down the dark hole or to say, no, despair, I'm not having it today. We have the power of choice. So thank yes. you for that reminder. Absolutely. I mean, it's okay and appropriate to feel sad sometimes, right? I mean, there's so horrific things happening every day. But like you said, you don't have to stay there and you can find ways to get out. Yes, and, and, and the grieving is appropriate. That's yes. And it's important. Mm -hmm. and we, we refer to that, back often to that um, Jeremiah thing, which, which says, call the wailing women and teach us, teach us how to grieve. Nice. It's an important skill. We need to not only allow it, but, but recognize it as a, an important part of the process of change. Absolutely. So what do you wish all adults on the planet today, little question, would do better or would do differently? Probably a long list, but pick a few. <laughs> I think that to be more aware and more responsible for what's What's, uh, what's going on around us? Anybody of any age, even little kids, need to know enough to understand what matters. Yes. Know? So that's really, that's really what I think about that. That's awesome. Yeah. And one of the poets we've shared thus far is Maddie Stepanek, who is a youth poet. 
and he has a poem about things that matter. And we, we shared a stanza of that in one of our episodes. So that, that's an important word, what matters. How about you, Nancy? Well, I think adults would not protect their children from the hard things of life. I wish adults could um, take time to dance with their children and have fun with their children, but also not, not fear taking their children to the bedside of someone in the family who's dying mm-hmm. or to attend a funeral and to, to take them to, to marches. I mean, I, I think seeing, seeing adults with children at marches is very, very powerful, as we've seen, I believe, in some of the marches around climate. I mean, it takes mm-hmm. all ages, and you see whole families. That's, that's, that's important. And I wish that adults did not have to work so hard to just make a living, that what they do is that's what they do. They work, and they work, and they work, and have little time for anything else mm-hmm. except to kind of do more work on the weekends to kind of keep the family together. It's very sad for me uh, to see that. Nancy and Rosemary, you have a perspective of two different um, home bases. Mm -hmm. I know, because this is where I live in the United States, that that work culture is huge. Is it the same in the UK? Yes, it is. Um, I think uh, parents who are aware of of current events have a responsibility to share it with, with their children. It's very hard because we always want to protect. But, but when you when you engage in something like a demonstration, or even if you, since you can't always do that, if you can talk to what's happening, talk to the children about mm-hmm. what's happening, and not to be afraid of it, but to recognize that this is an issue for all of us. These are the choices we have to make, and you will have continuously to make as you get older. That's right. And also, I think, uh, for parents uh, to be aware, adults to be aware of how anxious children are yes. about what's happening and to pay really, really close attention to their anxiety, their fear, terrible fear about what the future holds for them. Is there a future? I've seen this literally through, through, through COVID of teenagers feeling that perhaps their future has been stripped for them, mm-hmm. the one that they imagined two years ago. And I think um, not dismissing that, not saying, oh, everything's going to be okay. That's right. Letting letting children help help them to deal with their fear and their anxiety and take it very very seriously. I think. And we've we've been having conversations in Nancy's family, and I've had them with mine ab- about career choices and, and challenging the idea that that a, a, a good career is the best possible salary you can get. You know, mm-hmm. and all the all the the worldly goods that go with us. You know, the, the type of house, the type of vacation, mm-hmm. all of that. As if that was the thing that your career should give you, and yet, but we know, and thank goodness, people making very different choices, and whose criteria would be: um, Does this will this make me happy? Mm-hmm. And also, um, just as important, is this a, is this going to be a contribution to the community now mm-hmm. and in the future? So, am I part of creating something good, or am I just out to get as much as I can for me? Right. So those conversations yeah. of, of you know, mid-teen, older, going to college, where is it leading? What mm-hmm. am I, why am I doing this? Because mm-hmm. often people, kids do it because they think they ought to. Right. They've been, their parents have led them to believe that the one important thing is to make a good salary. Right. And those are the educational choices they'll make out of that. So it's desperately important desperate. that kids should have a different set of values. And right. I think one of the differences in the cultures is in England, at least, and I think I can say this for parts of Europe, 
The gap year is more acceptable. And I think, I know from, from my family, parents just get all anxious if a child suddenly says, I'm not sure what I want to do and I think I'd like to do something else or I'm two or three years through college, but you know what? I want to take a break. Scares parents to death. Absolutely. What if they don't finish? What that, are we going to do? That was my experience. <laughs> I, I didn't want to go to college straight out of high school. Yeah, and that parental pressure that you described, Rosemary, is exactly what happened to Diane Amelia, where she felt that pressure to go right to college, even though she really didn't want to. I didn't. And my yeah. mom, uh, you know, I, I said this to her, I'd like to take a year. And it was the one time that she pretty much laid down a rule. I didn't live in a house with a lot of rules that mm-hmm. was more simpatico, but she's like, absolutely not. That not happening. And off I went. And, you know, I reflect on that because a lot of wonderful things in my life wouldn't be if I hadn't gone at that particular point in time. But it also makes me wonder about the road not taken. Right. And that push for a degree that makes money, that return on investment everyone talks about is another thing we've discussed in terms of the false narrative that stuff is what makes you happy. That that beautiful house, that beautiful car makes you happy. When we know, the people around this table know it's relationships with other people that, that make you happy. So what advice, or actually, what is one wish you have for the world? Maybe that it survives. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, as a habitable world, it's going to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, the is going to be there, but it may not have any people on it. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I hope we all wake up in time to get create a, a planet that humans can live on. Yes. And that's going to take some revolutionary thinking for a lot of people. The people take it for granted this is you know, that the climate crisis is somebody else's business. Right. The governments will fix it, and then they, instead of fixing it, they get a new agreement with the fossil fuel companies. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And like you mentioned earlier, bringing children to demonstrations and marches related to climate crisis definitely. But one shared memory we have, one of my favorites, was we went to the State House with a bunch of homeless children. And it was during Halloween time, so we dressed them up in costumes. I was dressed as a witch, and I had a sign on that said, Drop a House on Me, meaning the House of Representatives in, in the State House. And to, you know, to fund more services for homeless families and shelters, and housing in particular, because yes. housing is a solution to homelessness, not shelters. The kids loved it. Definitely made an impression. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> One tactic that I used in getting the families um, at Wellspring House that needed what they needed in terms of being approval for benefits was to, um, a Friday afternoon, when workers were trying to get through and close in, I would take the kids to get ice cream before we went <laughs> to the welfare office. And that was a, a tip that someone gave me and said, get them ice cream cones and then just take them in and you will find that it will be a matter of seconds. <laughs> before the workers will pay attention. That's brilliant. As, as their ice cream is dripping over the floor <laughs> and over the desk. So, and it works. It works. What a great act of civil disobedience. <laughs> what a wonderful act of civil disobedience. That is fantastic. We, we, never, we never took ice cream to the workers. Somebody said to me that, that possibly would have been another benefit, but we did not do that. <laughs> I love that. So because you are wise women in your 80s and 90s, what advice would you give the younger set, like maybe the 20 to 40 year old range and then the 50 to 70 year old in terms of planning for their lives to retain their personal power? And I'm, for you, Rosemary, like your agency, you know, your, your power of choice is what we mean by that. Well, one thing I would say, first of all, is to be sure that a person has a support group. Mm-hmm. If there's one thing I really believe is that at every stage, every stage needs 
You need people around you who are friends, uh, who have a family support group, mm-hmm. families that come that come together, and there are real a support group. I think that's absolutely rather than isolation. I, I see again some of my nieces and nephews. They have no friends from college, right? And I cannot believe. I mean, we've just had the experience of being here three months, and they constantly look at each other and just are so happy. We have so many friends who are so dear to us. Mm-hmm. And even now, I mean, that's important. At 80, 90, Very. to have, and our support system is here. Right. One of the things that we, we miss being away is that we haven't, in our, in our in our older age, gotten as many friends. We still have family, thank goodness. But we don't have the same friends in England where we are as we have here, mm-hmm. which is why it's been so important to come back and not only be able to Zoom with people, but be able to hug people and really meet people face-to-face and catch up. Absolutely. And realize that in the years, two years, that we haven't been able to get back because of COVID, the changes that have happened. Our friends who are very sick in hospital, some of our friends who have died, when we look at the circle of our support around, there are empty chairs. Think of the last time, and they're gone. And Rosemary has said so often that one of her, and I love it, that you take life now and each experience as if it's the last time you'll have it. Yes. Because we can't plan. We can't assume. That's why life is so precious every day. Yes. The twenties and forties are oh, they're the ones when they're bringing up small children, rather older children, and it's, it's there's a huge responsibility. It's it's a bit different when you're older, I think, because it's not no longer so directly your personal everyday responsibility. But but on the other hand, you have a lot of, of influence, of all being well, if you've got good family ties. Um, you, the older people they can share with younger ones, and maybe even sort of not correct exactly, but talk about things that maybe that hasn't in the same way affected them yet. So it's it's a continuous process, isn't it? The ones that the 20s and 40s are dealing with in terms of bringing up children are the ones they will have learned in in their earlier years, mm-hmm. I think. And that, that's that's good because the, on the whole, the demonstration age, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the younger one. Not thank goodness, not necessarily. But when you when you get a bit older, you may find that side of trying what work for children more for change more more difficult. But you can still do it. It's it's something across his ages, doesn't it? But it changes as it goes through. I mean, we've all we've all what greater to you know recognize how much leadership capacity there is in much younger people. And there have been so many kids in all over the world who've been inspired by her. And of course, the government reaction is is they ought to be in school because they need a good education. Whereas the best possible education is to be be out there shouting for the right kind of change to happen. One hundred percent. You know, and that need for support during that parenting stage is one reason, you know, when we worked together at Wellspring House, where, why we had Cape Ann families, providing weekly parenting support groups, providing a person from the community to visit one-on-one yes. with a parent if they wanted, the nurturing program when the entire family came, and learn new ways of being. Mm-hmm. See, what are you talking about, Rosemary? Yes. You know, ways ways of being and ways of um, treating each other mm-hmm. with compassion and empathy and all that great stuff for the common good, like we said. I mean, that's what it's all about. So I think when you think about the parenting age, that definitely covers the 20 to 40-year-old range. But what advice would you have for those 50 to 70? Well, I think we would did, did touch on that as being a continuous mm, yes, change true. process. But of course, when you're getting to be, when people began to think of you as old, that's a different different sort of platform <laughs> to be in, I think. And um 
I don't know. I was, I'm having a hard time remembering what it was like to be 70. But <laughs> I was actually, I do remember. I mean, I was at Wellspring there. And that work and that constant interaction mm -hmm. right. with all kinds of people, some very troubled, some very exciting, mm -hmm. lots of ages. I mean, to be able to do that is wonderful. Yeah. It's not an experience that's available to everybody, but to get as near as, as we can. And I found that, well, I have sons now and a daughter who are all over 70. And, and they, I mean, they're, they're involved in all kinds of mm -hmm. things. I mean, my, my oldest daughter married again to a very wealthy man and, and I was worried that she'd sort of, you know, sit in the back big chair and not worry too much. But in fact, she's still with her, with her siblings, you know, out there caring and doing things. As they grow older, they, they haven't changed their attitudes to what matters. And I was talking to my oldest son who lives in Edinburgh. He, he and his wife had just gone to, to protest at the climate change um, conference, that absolute dud it was in Glasgow. Um, so they had been there. And most of my family of any age are involved. They don't necessarily go to demonstrations, but they, they care. And they work with other people who care. One of them it seems to have made it a life choice. She spends her time um, organizing and being part of um, protests and, and working up support for the, mm -hmm. for the changes that are needed. Mm -hmm. You raised them well, Rosemary. That's right. Well, they got it from somewhere. <laughs> But I had a lot of good influence in my life, mm -hmm. you know, and so I was brought up with that kind of attitude and, and, and finding Nancy and her being part of my life mm -hmm. and doing something together that was so important. Yeah. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's enormously important for me. I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't be anything like I am now without her. <laughs> I remember your 70s and what you were doing. You were gardening every day. You were yes. baking bread from scratch. You were making mince pies and the most delicious soups <laughs> and leading solstice rituals. And That's right. Never a dull moment. <laughs> Can you talk a bit about Carlos before you go? And Carlos was a resident at Wellspring House as a teenager and recently wrote a book about how you can use pain to further your growth. And it's called The Resurrection Plan. Is that yes, correct? Yes, yes. yes. Can you just say a bit about that before you go? Yes, I'd be very happy to. Um, Carlos was at Wellspring in uh, the year 1999, and he was 16 at the time. And uh, when he came uh, to the shelter, to the family shelter, with his mother and his seven-year-old sister, Laura, and uh, he, we were the only shelter at the time that took boys over 12. And so uh, he was 16, and we gave, made sure he had his own room because we didn't think it was appropriate for him to be in the same room with his mom and his sister. So we got the state to say, yes, we'll pay for two rooms, which is, is magic in itself. <laughs> anyway, um, Carlos, the experience of uh, being at Wellspring, he'd been homeless um, most of his life. He came from Puerto Rico with his mother when he was three, and uh, he was homeless most of his life. And they were in and out of shelters. And then in the book, which he has just published, he writes about somebody sending them to Gloucester, Massachusetts, and he ended up in a 17th century farmhouse. <laughs> Um, we'll let you read the book to see how he describes me and the two of us <laughs> the, morning after, the morning after he arrived. Then he went to Gloucester High School. He had a most marvelous experience at Gloucester High School. The, the principal was Joe Sullivan. He welcomed him. He told him he was going to mentor him. Natalie Daly, who taught English at the high school, was his English teacher and recognized that his vocabulary 
was phenomenal and recognized his writing skills and affirmed those. He was taking an honor science course. So they were at Wellspring for six months and then they moved. And he had he, he wrote a letter to his classmates right before he left, which was then published in the Gloucester Daily Times, in which he thanks them for the experience being with them and saying, you know, you shared life with a homeless guy. And nobody knew he was homeless because he walked from Wellspring House to the high school every day. He did not want people to know he was he was homeless. So he says, you know, so he wore his baggy khaki pants and he, he wore his orange Doc Martens and he had gold chains. And he tells the kids what it was like and how welcoming they were. And he hopes, said, I don't want you to feel sorry for me. I don't want you to, I, I just want the next kid that comes to your high school who is, who's new, welcome them. Uh, with open arms. That's what I ask you uh, to do. So life became very difficult for him. Afterwards, um, he went. Uh, the family ended up in a, uh, a city that was very, very troubled. He quickly, because of a very disruptive family life, lost his kind of sense of, of well, really his, his inner power is how he felt. Mm-hmm. He just got taken over. Talk about power over. And um, eventually he started to deal drugs, um, use drugs, deal drugs, became a member of a gang, and ended up basically with the gang stealing cars and transporting them across state lines and one night uh, he was caught he was caught with four of the gang members who all escaped and he was the only one who was caught he was convicted he landed in jail I'm, I'm shortening the story but I mean really what he went through there was the pain there were two things I don't want to say saved him but in some ways did and that was his power of memory he writes in the book how he always remembered the kindness that was shown to him as he was going through all this. The neighbor who came out and offered his mother and himself an evening meal when they were sitting on the steps and didn't know what they were going to do. The kindness that he experienced at Wellspring, the kindness of uh, the teachers and affirmation at Gloucester High School. He remembered that, and he always also had this, had uh, the sense of, I think a really inner spiritual sense of wanting to reflect, and he wrote a journal. He kept a journal, spasmodically, but he kept a journal. The book was given to him by a staff person at Wellspring, working weekends, who recognized again the kind of man he was. And eventually, he got out of prison. He got a job, and then he got. Um, he, he did he, in time did very well. He's now 38, and he landed in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. The boss he was working for in Massachusetts recognized his talents and wanted him to start another division in in Eau Claire. So there he is. Well, he's become quite successful, and he contacted us a few years ago saying he wanted to, he was writing his book, and he was going to get it published. And he finally sent us a manuscript last winter, asked if we would read it, and asked that if I felt so inclined after I read it to write an endorsement of the book, he would love that. We both read it. We were so taken with his ability his writing abilities, his vocabulary, his way of expressing himself. And um, so the book was published, and then he was in touch with us in October and saying he was coming to Gloucester, and he wanted to present us with a copy of the book before it had its formal launch. And um, he came, and it was quite an experience to see him walk in in the door and look. It makes me weep now because he said, he looked at me and said, God, it's 22 years, and I can't believe it. And he, he, he wept, and we wept. We sat, we talked, 
And then you know, he has his own video company now, so he basically, uh, you know, had, had all the equipment to take pictures of us and show things. And he never realized that Rosemary was a writer. And when she presented him with a couple of her books, we have a, a, a picture of us very state with me holding his book, Rosemary holding. Um, what were you holding? The, the the trophy I gave him, I think. Yeah, yeah the Celtics trophy. <laughs> yeah. And um, and he's holding two of Rosemary's books. And he, he went. He's just in the name. So now the book has been published. And the reason that he gave it the title, the resurrection plant is a desert plant that can survive without water for years. And eventually, if it gets any amount of water, it starts coming back to life, and it even it even throws seed. And wow. he has found, and here's his scientific background. A scientist, a researcher in South Africa who is doing research on what is it about the resurrection plant that allows it to survive this way so that perhaps it can be used in drought countries uh, and inserted into the genes inserted into those plants that they need, the grain plants that they need. So that it's it just amazing. So he sent, a, he sent an email to the researcher and said, I just want you to know I've written this book and where I got the title and I love the work you're doing, and uh, she wrote back and said, "Wow, we must keep in touch." So that's 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 Carlos. That's, that's how you do it, one person at a time. That's right. And he's been he's mentoring other yes. young men and older men too, because mm-hmm. he realizes that he has a, a way of, mm-hmm. of expressing the very destructive feelings and right. way to, to face them, and that, that he can share with others and mm-hmm. make them feel that. Let them feel that they have the power to change. But also, Rosemary, he has, what he says is he knows, he, from his experience, he knows how not to be with people yes. like himself. Yes. All, all the times he felt put down, all the mm-hmm. times he was labeled, all the times that, that we professional workers, we had all the answers for him. Right. And he, he believes that in his experience, um, he knows, he knows that what people need to know is that they're loved, that they're lovable, and he needs people to be not labeled and to be affirmed. And that's his that's his message. And when he speaks to these groups, that's what he says to them. You're all loved. Right. And uh, and you can love other people. I remember being in the Gloucester High cafeteria one day. I had a table out doing teen mentor yes. recruitment and he, I remember him coming over the table and saying, Stacy, you know, that mentoring thing, that's a good idea. You know, <laughs> yeah, he's very wise soul from very, wise very soul. early age. Very well, I am most definitely picking up a copy of the resurrection plant. And, and he'll be a great future guest speaker. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yes, it'd be wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Now, the book is available now. I, I, he thought it was going to be Am- international Amazon. As I read it now, Barnes & Noble is already selling it. Fantastic. So, uh, okay. I'm going to try to get, before we go to the local bookstore, to see if they'll get some copies here. Oh, yes. It's in the hard book and paperback, and also audio parenting. Well, thank you both. We don't have the words to express the gratitude of having this time with both of you. Well, so, thank you. Beyond pleasure, beyond honor. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. We love you. We love you too. Yes, we thank do. You.